0: Welcome to the final episode of the first series of the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Walsh, and for this special advanced engineering edition, we've pulled together insights from interviews with three prominent leaders, each from different fields of advanced engineering. Matt Hinton is a Chartered Engineer with 34 years' experience leading sales and manufacturing in organisations including Siemens and Cummins and on products as diverse as turbochargers, power turbines and marine engines. Next up is Stephen Davis, MBA, who for nearly 30 years has led commercial bids and business development in infrastructure and rail projects for the likes of Siemens and Bombardier. And last but by no means least is Neil Waterman, a published author on the science of supercars, who has worked in Formula One and elite motorsport for nearly 40 years with Red Bull Racing, Renault and Benetton F1 teams and Jaguar Racing. Through discussions with myself and other Bond colleagues, our guests shared some fascinating insights into trends and future developments within advanced engineering, as well as what progression means to them their experience of attracting and developing engineering talent within their specialist fields and how they have progressed the lives of others. And I guess throughout your journey, how would you say you've progressed the lives of others along the way?
1: I am a qualified mentor with the Institution of Electrical Engineers or Engineering and Technology, IET. To this extent, I you know I have I have spent my career often discussing, you know, some of the decisions that younger engineers in particular are making in their careers. That's one work example. I have had such a, I've worked in such a diverse range of industries and, you know, I've worked in a, a number of different cultures, organizations of Cummins, Brush, MAN, Siemens and one or two other smaller companies. They all have their contrasting characteristics. So I've got quite a good breadth of experience that enables me to, you know, provide some guidance to people at an early stage in their career. Outside of work, I quite enjoy advising people and I sometimes advise colleagues with respect to their nutrition and rehydration to, in order to improve cycling performance.
0: I could probably do that, not the cycling thing, but the nutrition thing, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. Just going back to that you're a qualified mentor. So what, what does that involve?
1: As a mentor, usually it's usually it's someone within a different department, but in the same company whom you have no direct leadership responsibilities for, and nor do they directly have any answerable activities to yourself. So it puts you in somewhat of an independent position. As a mentor in a relatively senior role, of course, you, you can be quite sensitive to the politics that might go on in an organization. But not only that, you have a view of where the stakeholders are, or which departments certain characteristics might be suitable for. So that's what I focus on. I think once you've got a degree and if you progress through the engineering ranks, unless you remain a specialist in electronics, if you're an electronics engineer, a specialist in mechanical design, if you're a mechanical engineer, at some point in your career, the discipline of that degree, and you can say the same of uh, business or law or accountancy, whatever it might be, not accountancy and lawyers, they tend to progress through the ranks in those particular disciplines. But in many other cases, the discipline of your academics. Becomes incidental at some point in time because the experience becomes more important,
0: yeah, in terms of you've mentioned some really i guess there's been some really outstanding points in terms of key factors or lessons, but what would you say I guess are the main lessons that you've you've learned that you can share with our audience?
1: Make a career out of something you enjoy if you can, often you don't get the exposure at school or in university that you do when you start working. So in my case, I'm glad that I had a bit of experience before I decided to go to university. That was not by design, that was just through the culture and background that I you know, that I came from. But certainly get as much experience as you can in many different cultures, in terms of industries or companies as you can before you actually graduate, then you're gonna be a more focused place, choosing the kind of company and the kind of role you want after university. And if you have that kind of focus and it's more apparent what you actually want, then you're more likely to interview much more successfully. So the first one is make a career out of something you enjoy. Secondly, and this is relative to Einstein's theory of madness, is that why would you expect a different result if you do the same thing again? This is about lessons learned. Make sure you do have lessons learned. We can all make mistakes, but you can turn them into positives as long as you take away the lessons that you've learned.
0: In terms of your lessons and experiences, is is there anything that stands out in your mind of things that you tried that that worked or didn't work or any tools or resources that you used?
1: If I think about a single block of training that I've received, it would be my my Six Sigma training when I was at Cummins. Cummins are one of the... uh, one of the foremost exponents of this kind of training but the toolbox of problem solving skills that i came away from that company with i continue to apply to this day six sigma typically is applied in a you know it may be in a shop floor environment where you're making something so you might have pieces of metal or pieces of plastic coming together at the end of a production line but it's equally as applicable to moving pieces of data and moving pieces of paper around in an office environment these are the kind of skills that i've been able to apply in in other aspects of life. Not that I get a spreadsheet out every 10 minutes with the wife or anything like that, you know, but it gives you a healthy instinct for problem solving, I guess.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, like, is it something that you apply to your personal life as well as like your, your professional life as well?
1: <laughs> I do things in the background, certainly, that enable me to, you know, have fruitful conversations about, you know, me and the wife planning a house purchase or planning something like that.
0: And I guess not just thinking about, progression for the future. How do you think your industry will progress in the future? What kind of things do you expect to see?
1: Well, MAN is the world leader in big reciprocating engines for marine vessels. So a very large engine that would drive you know, these huge container vessels that come into places like Felix driving the world's oil tankers. Most of these vessels have MAN engines at their core. And the, relative to some of the greener technologies that we're using for power generation on land, for instance, this is a very high emissions environment. So there are there are challenges in the industry to reduce emissions right now and improve efficiency at the same time. And as a result of which, MAN is having to invest a lot of R&D expenditure in investigating alternative fuels that are less harmful to the environment. We're also embarking on improved knowledge of the engine's performance so that we can effectively reduce the amount of fuel it burns. In this case, lots of measurements and lots of fine-tuning of the engine performance, you know, during a voyage. It's not just a setting at a point in time anymore. The engine will also create higher emissions as it starts, as certain parts start wearing. So you can optimise maintenance schedules again by measuring more things and understanding more about the engine performance. So that's where we are, but it is still ultimately an engine that burns diesel. <laughs> and so MAN is also active in total alternative engines, cryogenics, for instance. You know, hybrid propulsion systems, for instance, where you can adopt a different power source based on batteries when you're coming in and out of port, and you know, maximum power isn't needed. So we're also investigating that. But I must admit, it's difficult to see where the game changers are going to come from because it wouldn't be at all surprising if, if there were one at some point in time.
0: I was going to say, is that, well, I guess it is obviously already something that's in process, but like how far off do you think that is in terms of like timeframes?
1: Well, it's difficult to say because if Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, if those two guys got together, Amazon you know, having enough business for a massive global shipping fleet, and Elon Musk being a game changer in terms of green technologies if the two of them were to get together with the resources they have between them now they could quite easily fund a transformational technology for big ship propulsion i'm sure i don't know where it is but i think this is the kind of um, this is the kind of game changer that's only possible with the resources they have really they have no reason to protect the given technology or industrial sector what benefits them both is the green technology.
0: Well, on behalf of Amoria Bond and our audience, thank you very, very much for joining us and and sharing your progression story with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Jenny. It's a pleasure.
0: Cheers, Matt.
2: Hi, and welcome to the Moria Bond Progressing Lives podcast. I'm your host, Edie Weisberg, and today we're joined by our special guest, Steve Davis. Steve has over 20 years experience in the industry, working his way up from project manager through to bid director and now currently working as head of business development for a large transportation organisation. His career surrounded the transportation sector, being always customer focused and almost always in the service sector. Throughout his career, Steve's successfully developed, negotiated and implemented new products, with many of these being first for his previous employers and organisations. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. It's great to have you on. Seeing as this podcast is all about progressing lives everywhere, it does feel topical to ask, what does progression mean
3: to you, Steve? Well, hi, Edie. Progression to me means working a path and where that path takes you, being flexible, looking at opportunities, looking around you at where the market's going, being aware of the market, being aware of the environment and taking opportunities when they arise. They, they might not be expected, they might not be planned. Some people do like to work with a plan, but I haven't in particular. I've I've tended to work in a a different way from that, and it's worked out for me.
2: I guess on that point as well then, through your progression journey, how have you sort of progressed the lives of others?
3: I very much try to encourage people to have an open mindset and to look for opportunities, and I, I really am very, very supportive of New people coming into the business from different businesses, I mean actually, where I am now, we get people from the military, and I'm really encouraging of them to to learn about this industry and stick and and stay with it you know it's it's not just a short term thing it's something you can stay with for the long term. We have graduates, we have interns, I've worked with apprentices, and my message is is broadly similar all the time this This is an interesting business to work in there's lots of different opportunities. Be flexible, be adaptable, be prepared to travel if it suits you. As I say with me, it didn't really suit me for, for other reasons, but for other people it does. And and work with it. You know, be be open to the ideas uh, that others will give you. And, and try your best to do a variety of different things such that you can be a well-rounded person within this business. I was asked by an apprentice that worked with me in one of my very first jobs. He was doing, I think it was a hydrodynamics uh, apprenticeship, and he asked me, well, because I was a little older, because I'd taken time out to do my pilot's license and I'd done my various courses. So so I was actually relatively old when I came in. So he was about five years younger. And I said, well, what was, what was the benefit of um, spending all that time at college then? And I had to think about that for a while because people that do come in early on and do an apprenticeship, they've gained a lot of experience. And they're still younger than I was at the time. And I actually said, I said, well, it was just just to make my life easier, really, because I felt then by doing those qualifications and so on, I could go into a position whereby I was already on a lower management level. And whereas, whereas the guys coming in at the apprenticeship level had to work their way to that. However, since then, I probably actually slightly changed my view, and uh, and I don't discourage anybody from going in at apprenticeship level now. I mean, I was very proud of the fact that I had an apprentice until uh, not so long ago that, that really has worked so hard to go through apprenticeship, and he's done his degree course part-time, and he's now passed a first in electrical engineering, and he was someone that I set on a path that was possibly contrary to the way I would have seen it when I was younger myself.
2: I think there's been a massive push and increase on apprenticeships in recent years as well and their importance and benefits outshone again, haven't they?
3: Uh, that's right. Well, can, I can assure you I'm not knocking the graduate entrance because they have their value too. But I'm, I'm also uh, saying that the value of the people that have come through the apprenticeship route and have seen it from, from grassroots is, is hugely valued.
2: Especially in sort of the line of work with the rail industry, I can imagine as well. In terms of progressing others' lives as well, and, and helping with people's own progressions too, what benefits have you experienced from that?
3: There's a definite sense of satisfaction in progressing other people's lives, with, without any doubt. I think that's a it's a great reward in a job. I mean, I've I've had someone who who I helped a lot in my probably my second job when i started who went through various mergers and acquisitions uh, we came across each other again he had a very senior position and you know for a short while he was actually my boss and i thought well that's really interesting that because i know i i kind of got him on the path to where he is now and so i can be can, can be pleased with that i've helped people to to find their jobs some overseas some within the uk some in different companies but i've certainly Certainly never never held back in, in telling people uh, where I think they need to improve if, if they want to get along. I'm very keen on mentoring people. And sometimes, sometimes what has to be said isn't what the person wants to hear. So that honesty, that honesty is really important. And also, I think it's important to recognize that, that people's ambitions are of a different level and, and go to a different place. And it's so, so important to recognise that we're not all the same.
2: Yeah, each person's their own individual, aren't they? That's such a good point to touch on as well, that in order to help progress other people's lives, it is good to be honest in a friendly and nice way and help them develop themselves as well. Throughout your journey, what would you say are sort of the key lessons that you've learnt that, that you could kind of share with anyone listening to this podcast as well?
3: The key lesson for me would be the individual to be honest about themselves. I think that when we start our career and and we do a certain amount of education or work in a certain business and we learn things, the more we learn about where we're working teaches us about ourselves as well. Hopefully that puts people in a good place to judge about what they want to do and what they can do. And when those two coincide, when, when what you want to do and what you can do become the same thing, then you're... You're in, for, for want of a phrase, in the happiest place, because there's no, there's no contradiction. It's almost like finding a hobby, in fact, because a hobby is something that you generally want to do and you can do. I'm not suggesting that, that people should think of their work as their hobby, because there's probably good reason to keep your hobby and your work very separate, because it's an outlet. But to use that analogy is quite important, because your enthusiasm then for doing the job... I, I believe would be enhanced. And what I would encourage people to do is not try to find that place so quickly. That's where I do come back to the the, the person I was speaking about before that was the apprentice and, and wondered why I'd taken so long to get into the industry. You know, why I was relatively old when I, when I came in compared to others. He did find his place. He did find the, the, the place in life where what he believed he wanted to do and and where he was as a person coincided and that, that's worked out very well for him. He's very, very successful in the industry now, ran, ran his own business in the end and recently sold it, I think, and has probably retired on the proceeds. So, you know, great <laughs> and really, really good, really good fortune. That's absolutely the first lesson for me is don't make quick conclusions about what you think you're capable of and, and how that combines with, with what you want to do. Take some time. Take some time. It's, it's, it's not a rush. Most people work for 30 plus years. So it doesn't really matter if it takes three, four five years to work out where that place is for you.
2: Thank you so much, Steve, for joining me. I do really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have.
3: I have. Thank you very much. Hi
4: hey Neil, how are you?
5: Very well. How
4: are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. So having spent more than 30 years in top-level motorsport, largely Formula One, uh, and being part of senior management at numerous F1 teams, Neil's currently working with a senior management team of a a Formula One uh, company. During the last 10 years, he's also been involved in a number of motorsport and supercar books and authored the science of supercars, as well as doing some involving illustrations as well. Firstly, Neil, the objective of of this podcast is to, to go over kind of progression and your progression and experiences. How did you kind of get into the industry? Is there anyone or, or anything that's kind of inspired you?
5: There are plenty of people that have inspired me, but really it's it's a, a lifelong fascination and passionate relationship with motorsport, I think, is the sort of thread that runs right the way through it. I'm just as much motorsport and certainly Formula One anorak as I've, I've always been, really.
4: Okay, brilliant. Yeah, that's a a great kind of overview there. In terms of how you would say you've possibly progressed the lives of others, I mean, this can be in any kind of area of life. So, you know, in terms of working, employees or team members or any projects that you feel you've massively contributed, but then also outside of that on a a more personal level.
5: I I enjoyed working with the graduates, for example, in in a a couple of teams where when they arrived, it it, it wasn't clear where their real skill set was. But working with them over the months, you know, there were some amazing projects that were that were done and delivered, which, quite honestly, without them wouldn't have got done. And had they not have been done, the car would have gone slower. You know, really, the, the currency of Formula One is fractions of a second per lap. And, and if you can get people contributing to reduce the lap time with something, let's say, a bit more innovative or creative, it's yeah, quite rewarding to, to see that.
4: Yeah, no, it sounds like it. I mean, you mentioned that it wasn't initially clear where maybe they would slot in or, or add the value. How, how did you kind of figure figure that out, or or bring them to to where they were that they could actually do so?
5: I think doing a bit more listening than speaking, really, because of course, as a manager, you you can be prescriptive, but sometimes it's it's better to ask the opinion of others, and and uh, you know, even if they are new to the, the discipline, well, what are your thoughts on it? You know, where, where do you think? It can go what can we do with it how can we make it better
4: in terms of just any kind of projects you've worked on is, is there any times where you feel that you're very instrumental in in kind of direction or you know improvement of where that was I,
5: i've got to say that the red bull racing journey was incredible and to be part of the senior management there was such a privilege and to be working with amazing people and you know i, I guess most notably Adrian Newey, who is to this day still with Red Bull. I left in 2013, but strangely, Adrian and I worked in the design office at March Engineering in 1982, which was my first ever job.
4: Oh, and then you worked together again at Red Bull.
5: Yes, that's right. Yeah. And there, there's an incredible sort of team, well, certainly team spirit that, that forms at the beginning of the journey. As a group of managers, there's all the usual sort of I don't know. You could go into a meeting and you'd you'd see what I'd call entries for the World Body Language Championships because you know people aren't quite sure of what to make of each other and you know who does what and why have they got this opinion and uh, and then over the months you work together, you form your your strategy as to how you're going to make the team a winning team and uh, and then you set about delivering it and you through I'd say peer review is a very important thing and communicating using the spoken word as, as often as you can is is a good idea but also having robust business systems and processes in, in the background, making everything clear and you're reducing risk, you're improving reliability, you're therefore improving performance as well. For me, that was an amazing journey to be a part of and then win four World Championships with the team from 2010 to 13 was amazing. Yeah,
4: It's like with everything, isn't it? It's, it's the highs and lows, but when you put much time and effort into something and it actually comes out to to succeed, especially in something that's so competitive, it's worth everything, isn't it? Worth all the ups and downs.
5: Absolutely, yeah. Actually, I've got to say that the various books I was involved with were a a fabulous writer called Martin Roach. But it was David Coulthard, who was one of the drivers at Red Bull at the time, had seen some of my scribbly drawings of F1 cars and said, oh, I must introduce you to my ghostwriter, Martin Roach. He'd just done his autobiography. And we met and collaborated on a couple of supercar books. And then we put this book together called The Science of Supercars. So I did the technical content writing and produced the illustrations as well. And, and that was a very, very, very tough thing to do to achieve because holding down a day job and then being, you know, also on a, on a real deadline to to deliver the various phases of a book, working with a, a professional author, yeah, that was a lot of pressure. But it was it was fantastic, and uh, we got to drive some super cool cars as well.
4: So the the last thing that I really wanted to touch on, I have some of the most extensive knowledge and experience over the past however many years how do you see kind of the industry, you know in the near future but also further as well obviously at the moment it's a bit of a weird time but hopefully we'll be getting out of that soon but but yeah in the short term and and long term as well obviously technology is progressing uh, more and more every single day i
5: think the main thing is because formula one is it's either the engineering sports entertainment industries it needs to decide the proportions if you like and that kind of changes from year to year It needs to be entertaining. It needs the TV audiences and people going to the the racetracks as well. It is a a feeder to other industries, but also it's, it's the sort of the melting pot of intellect and scientific, technological, engineering, manufacturing and operational achievements. And it needs to continue to be right at the cutting edge.
4: Thank you very much for participating.
5: Well, fantastic. And I hope it's helpful for people that are either already in the industry or looking to come into it. So, yeah, thank you very much.
0: Thanks. Bye. And there you have it. Thank you to our guests, Matt, Stephen and Neil, for those interesting perspectives and key takeaways on the benefits of having a mentoring scheme within a company. The understated value of apprenticeships versus graduate entrance into engineering. How Six Sigma as a toolkit is as relevant today for the data industry as it is for advanced engineering. Future developments in the marine industry with the use of cryogenics and hybrid engines. The importance of taking your time to find out both what you can do and what you want to do. And peer review as an effective tool to shape high performance engineering leadership. We hope you enjoyed this episode and encourage you to check back over previous podcasts from series one, as we've had some fantastic guests who've shared some invaluable insights. We're already very excited about the second series of the Amoria Bond Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, which will be launched in May, with special guest Professor Damian Hughes, co-host of the High Performance podcast and author of Liquid People. You won't want to miss it, so do make sure you subscribe to the series and please do like and share. Thank you.